Our scripture lesson this morning comes to us from the Gospel of John, chapter 11, as we are in the last seat, the last sermon in our series on TLDR, our overviews of the Gospels. And today we're going to be telling a story that's probably well known to many of us, and we're going to pick it up kind of in the middle. It's a story of how Jesus heard that his good friend Lazarus was ill. The word came to him while he was in the middle of his ministry that Lazarus was ill and that he should come to to heal Lazarus. But instead, Jesus delayed and he waited. And after a few days, he finally made his way to Bethany. And that is where we pick up the story today. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. And now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and to Mary, the sisters of Lazarus, to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed home. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, they will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah, the son of God, the one coming into the world. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. How do you remember your first great spiritual loss? That's a little bit of a vague question, and you can answer it however seems best to you. I I, I use that word spiritual for a very specific reason, but I admit it's a bit of a vague word. Some of us consider spiritual things to be the things that, that get us going. They make us go. They are our motivation in the world, the part that makes us get up and move. And for others of us, What is most spiritual to us are those things that are our anchor, that give us stillness and a quiet center in a world that is constantly moving around us. I remember once I was the the preacher at two churches that were separated by only three miles, and I uh, discovered that even though most of the folks in those two churches knew each other and knew each other well, they were as different as could be. One church was full of folks who had been beaten up by life. And when they came in the door every Sunday morning, they came looking to know that God was their rock, that God was unmoved, that one thing had not changed in a world that just kept changing around them, that one thing was still eternal. And the other church showed up every Sunday morning, full of folks, full of confidence, Confident that they could change things. They walked in every Sunday with a smile on their face, ready to hear some direction from God about how they could go do something amazing. 
They were just waiting for God to show them what it was. They wanted a sign that God isn't done yet. That things could get even better than they are. I preached the same sermon in, in both churches. And the same sermon in one church would draw a laugh at certain points that would be met with stony silence in the other. And then some other part of the sermon that didn't land at all the first time would lead to nods and laughter and chuckles in the congregation. It made me lose all sense of whether I was funny or not, because I could never predict how anyone would respond to what I said. So I'm not sure it makes much difference what you consider spiritual, whether it's the things that are your rock or the things that make you move. This morning, I'm more concerned with a time that you lost it. When whatever it was that spoke to you, that, that guided you in your spiritual life, what, whatever it was that was most treasured and valuable to you in your connection with God, was there a moment that you lost it? Maybe it was when a parent who had been your icon of God betrayed everything that they taught you. Or maybe it was just when they came to the end of a very peaceful and faithful life and they were gone and you couldn't look to them anymore. Maybe it was when a pastor moved away or fell from grace. Maybe it was something as simple as a new translation of the Bible or a new phrasing of a hymn that suddenly made something that had been familiar and steady and comforting sound suddenly strange and hostile. There's a story told by James White, the great Methodist theologian and worship historian who had a big part in compiling the United Methodist hymnal that we use here in the festival service. He once told somebody that the only question that keeps me awake at night about worship is this, what right do we have to change the way people pray? A spiritual loss can be the simplest or the most terrible of things. It's anything that makes us feel that we have lost something vital, something that is essential to our understanding of how it is that we can trust and connect with God. And I think my own first spiritual loss came very young. It was not the worst thing in comparison with many others. I expect uh, my first spiritual loss was the long childhood neurological disorder that made me about eight steps slower than the other kids my age. It was sometime in that period where the doctors told my parents to cherish the time they got with me. And even though five years later, the docs dismissed me from their care, and we as a family praised God, and we claimed it as a miracle, and even though we still do to this day, it was a slow miracle. One that unfolded after lots of seemingly unanswered prayers. I once heard a pastor say, I want to pray like kids pray. When kids pray for rain, they grab an umbrella. That wasn't my experience of childhood prayer. I like to think that even at that very early age, God was shaping me, creating something within my heart, preparing me for a life of patience, a life of trusting that God's timing is not our own, preparing me 
to believe and trust in the sort of faith that is a long obedience in the same direction. I like to think that that experience gave me a steady and unshakable faith. But sometimes I envy the smiling, blithe confidence of that pastor who carries his umbrella after he prays. Martha was still trying to figure out what she had lost when Jesus showed up there in Bethany four days after the funeral of Lazarus. Lord, if you had been here, he would not have died. She is in the middle of a double grief. There is the emotional, relational loss of her beloved brother who is gone. And there is also the fundamentally spiritual loss of her understanding of Jesus. She thought they were friends. Jesus had dined in her home. She had stayed with her and with Mary and with Lazarus. Jesus had healed so many strangers. So a week or two before, when Martha sent word to Jesus, Lazarus, whom you love, is ill. She expected Jesus to come running. But Jesus had waited and evaded. By the time he showed up, it was too late. So what did that mean about him and her? Did she really know him? Did he really care? If all of this is a very different way for us to enter into the gospel of John today, it's because the gospel of John is very different than all the other gospels that we have discussed throughout this TLDR series. The first three gospels that we looked at, Matthew and Mark and Luke, they're often called the synoptic gospels, which is to say they all have roughly the same synopsis. They tell a lot of the same events and stories, and they tell them in roughly the same order. But John's gospel is radically different than the other three. Most of its episodes, including this one here, the story of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, most of the episodes in John don't appear in any of the other gospels. And John doesn't just tell different stories. He tells fewer stories, but longer stories. He adds a lot of his own commentary. John opens his gospel by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he goes on like that for an entire chapter. And around 150 AD, there was a pastor named Clement of Alexandria who said, The synoptics give us, quote, a plain account of external facts. But John, said Clement of Alexandria, set out to compose a spiritual gospel. That's a bold claim. And it's a little vague. What do we mean when we say that a gospel is more spiritual than another? As we've said, spiritual things can be the things that get us hyped or they can be the things that bring us peace. But Clement helps us understand by saying that spiritual things are in contrast to external facts. Put another way, the synoptics tell us what Jesus has done. John wants to tell us what it all means. If Matthew is our historian and Mark is our wordsmith, if Luke is our activist, then John is our theologian. 
And maybe one reason John is wondering what does it all mean is that he was writing to a people who were on the verge of a terrible and terrifying loss. As best as we can tell, the Gospel of John was the last of the Gospels to be written. Written towards the end of the first century. Written for a church that was about to lose its pastor. And with that pastor, lose the only eyewitness that they had to Jesus' campaign and death and resurrection. That pastor is the author of this gospel, and we call him John. But in fact, he never actually names himself. Never even uses the pronoun I or me. Instead, throughout the gospel, he simply calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And at the very end of the book, in John 22, 21, 24, we read, This is the disciple whom Jesus loved, who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. And we know that his testimony is true. If you have known a great spiritual loss in your life, then you can identify how grief-stricken that church must have been when the disciples started writing down his memories. They were losing their direct connection to Jesus. He was preparing his goodbye, the apostle, as he wrote, for years, maybe even decades, the church could simply listen whenever the beloved disciple mused out loud about, oh, do you remember, have I told you about the time that Jesus did this? And then he would go on about what Jesus had said and about what it had all meant. But now this beloved disciple is writing it all down for them. And it won't ever be the same. He won't ever be there to explain it all to them again. And there is going to come a day when this fragile first century church is going to talk about their beloved disciple the way that Martha talked about Jesus. If only you had been here. Like any good pastor, the disciple points away from himself and toward Jesus and says that Jesus is the reason for everything he has done and everything that he has said John opens his gospel by declaring the reason. He says that Jesus has been with us since before we knew it. In the beginning was the word and through him all things were made and the word became flesh and dwelled among us. That's a very different beginning than the genealogies and the histories that we find in Matthew and Mark and Luke. This is a philosophical opening, a theological opening. In the beginning was the word. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. That Greek word that we translate as word, the Greek word logos, was a technical term among philosophers for reason and for wisdom. And just as we use words to tie the bare facts of different experiences together into one story that is full of meaning and that has a point and that is going somewhere. The logos is the reason and the wisdom and the mind of God. Jesus, the logos, is the living word of God, tying it all together and giving it meaning. And no gospel gives us more of Jesus's words than John. The synoptics give us quotes and snippets from Jesus 
But John gives us long speeches and includes the longest single speech that we have from Jesus in all the Gospels. In fact, he tells it in a speech that lasts four chapters long. 20% of the Gospel of John is given over to a single speech. And just listen to some of the things that Jesus told his disciples on the night before he was crucified. He said, I am going ahead to prepare a place for you. In a little while, you will not see me, but then you will see me again. I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. I am sending you the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes in me will go on to do even greater things than I have done. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. Every word of his farewell speech Jesus gives to the disciples is reminding the disciples that though they will soon lose sight of him, he will not lose them. And the passage that we read today is the turning point in John's gospel. John tells us that it was at this moment and after this miracle that convinced Jesus' enemies to silence him. And this story is also a sign of how far Christ will go to hold on to what is lost. When Jesus arrives in Bethany, he finds Martha shouting the way that we do when we feel lost. Martha walks up to Jesus to his very face and she says, you could have prevented this. And soon after what we read, Mary, Martha's sister, will come up and make the same accusation against Jesus. Lazarus' sisters confront Jesus boldly. They rage against the dying of their brother's light. They weep and they make Jesus watch them. And as he does, as the story unfolds beyond what we read earlier, something happens. John will go on to tell us that as Jesus listened to Martha and to Mary, he wept. You might have heard that Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible, but that's a bare external fact. It carries a meaning that goes far beyond all words. Some translations will say that Jesus, the Son of God, was greatly disturbed, overturned as if all his insides were out of place, disturbed, frustrated, grief-stricken, angry, not at Martha and at Mary, but alongside them. Disturbed because death is not natural. Jesus knows as well as Mary and Martha that Lazarus was not supposed to die. We were not made for such loss. There is sin in this world. There is brokenness in this world. And it makes everything unnatural. It separates us from those whom we love. And Jesus cannot see that death and suffering and not be disturbed. That is why Jesus came. Because the death of a single man pierces him as deeply as a nail. It gets him at his core. Mary says through her tears, my brother 
need not have died. And Jesus' response is to add his own tears to her own. Jesus wept. And he weeps even though he knows how this story is going to end. Jesus knows from the beginning what is going to happen next. And I didn't read that part for you, but let me give you the spoiler. Lazarus comes back. Jesus walks to the grave and says, Lazarus, come out. And John tells us, quote, the dead man came out. And Jesus knew all along where this was headed. And still Jesus wept. He wept over the loss and the inevitability of loss. The miracle revived Lazarus, but he still died eventually. Procrastination is not salvation. And we will not be saved by denying or avoiding the inevitable losses of a broken world. And Christ did not save us by denying or avoiding death or avoiding loss. He knows betrayal and loss and even death. And he walked through them so that we could be saved by death and resurrection. Our hope and our salvation is that sin and death will throw their worst at us and Jesus will still have the last word. John ends his gospel by saying, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. John's church lost an awful lot of stories that he never got the chance to tell, that he never got the chance to write down. They lost an awful lot when they lost John. But the beloved disciple thought that depth mattered more than breadth. He wanted to give more than the bare facts of Jesus' ministry. He wanted to give meaning to those facts. Just as Jesus gives meaning to the barest facts of our lives. Whether it's the grave or the sleepless nights or all those moments when we have been lost and losing, Jesus Christ, the living word, gets the final say over them all. And everything that happens in this world does not happen for a reason. But the Logos, the Word, the reason of God can give reason and meaning to even the most senseless things that do happen. In the beginning, Jesus says, or God says in Genesis, God created by speaking a word over what was formless and empty and meaningless. And that living word of God is still with us. And he is still in the business of new creation. And even when we lose sight of him, he has not lost us. He is still speaking the only words that can make meaning that can make sense out of it all. I am the resurrection and the life.
and the invitation he gives to us all today is to discover the meaning he has given to all that would otherwise otherwise be meaningless in our own lives. We can know him. Resurrection means he's still alive. And we can have purpose and meaning and hope if we answer when he says to us, dead ones, come out. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Would you pray with me? Holy Lord, even when we have lost sight of you, remind us that you have not lost us. Even when life seems most meaningless, may we discover that resurrection can transform even what has no words. Let us give our lives wholly to you so that we may know firsthand that you are the resurrection and the life. Amen.